There's something about being scared that brings us together. Sitting in a darkened room, sweat on our palms, heartbeat in our ears. The exhilarating, entertaining, and sometimes therapeutic experience that comes from being truly afraid. As a kid, the idea of Dracula floating around, it was not as scary because it's like, oh, there's one guy and he's probably in Europe. And I like had chronic nightmares, like every night I would have to like search the entire house from top to bottom. I made haunted houses. Haunted houses that you walk through? Yeah, you like in, them. in middle school, I'm like, put some haunted houses to shame. There are no vampires. There are no werewolves. There are no living dead. It's not true. I definitely believe in magic. Uh, I totally believe in sorcery and in, uh, and in magic. I think any type of loss of control definitely spurs a creative personality. Meanwhile, I'm at your barbecue going, who are these lizard people? Now, when I'm writing stuff, I try to get out of my comfort zone and just dive into the unknown. A lot of the movies were telling critical stories in a way that couldn't be told outside of the genre. It was like dealing with universal insecurities and fears in a cathartic and safe environment where the credits would roll and you could change the way someone saw the world by like that much. I'm Elijah Wood. And I'm Daniel Noah. And this is Visitations, a Shudder original podcast where we talk with some of our favorite creators. Taika Waititi. Mike Flanagan. Analilia Mirpur. Dan Harmon. Flying Lotus. And more. For intimate conversations about the things that scare us. And how we find light in the darkness. Season one of Shudder's original podcast, Visitations, is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm Shudder curator Sam Zimmerman. This is the History of Horror Uncut, an essential audio companion to Eli Roth's History of Horror. Eli Roth's History of Horror is a seven-episode docuseries threading the evolution and immortality of the genre and all its terrors within. These are the full, candid interviews, most of which can only be found and heard right here in this podcast. You'll hear how the genre shaped these filmmakers, authors, makeup maestros. You'll hear the personal, unbridled appreciation that only comes from those who know how special horror can be. Welcome to a more intimate history of horror. The History of Horror Uncut is built with the full, raw interviews conducted in production for Eli Roth's History of Horror. So in some cases, Eli leads the talk himself, and in others, deeply knowledgeable producer Kurt Sayinga steps in. Today, we bring you the man, the legend, the chin, Bruce Campbell. Much like our spectrum of in-depth conversations, the Bruce Campbell chat feels special because it feels like a different kind of Bruce Campbell chat, right? There's less of Bruce the cheeky showman and more of Campbell the actor and the filmmaker. The Evil Dead icon leaps into his early days of movie making with Sam Raimi, Scott Spiegel, Rob Tappert. He talks intricately and fascinatingly about being the subject of Raimi's intricate, spectacular, and splattery effects, from their debut all the way up to the huge production of Army of Darkness. And he covers his favorite horror films, which are often rooted in performance he so clearly admires. It's a reminder just how skillful Campbell is and has always been, while making it look so charming and so innate. Here now, is Bruce Campbell. Listen up, ghouls. So, low-budget <clears throat> horror movies, for instance, can, can you do things with those that perhaps you cannot with a uh, live, bigger budget production? Uh, I think generally horror movies are more forgiving because certainly back in the day, they were all no-name actors. Almost every single one in, in a 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s horror movie. Jamie Lee Curtis wasn't Jamie Lee Curtis. She was just, yeah, she was... Janet Lee's daughter, but she was still just Jamie Lee Curtis. That gave us a lot of hope when we did our first horror film because we didn't think we had the capacity to raise enough money for, let's say, a comedy that had to look good, had to be photographed a certain way. You might have to have Steve Martin in it or somebody like that. So this is way more forgiving, and we, we certainly went with that because we went to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre at a theater. There was nobody that we knew. We were like, ooh, that's good. There's nobody in that. And they, they got into the theater. We could sort of skip past that part of it, and that helped a lot. At the time, I was <clears throat> actually a student at the University of Michigan when Evil Dead came out. What made that film so powerful? Because at the time, it was really shocking. Well, we landed in the horror world through a series of events. Normally, all of our amateur movies in high school, junior high, were all comedies. All Three Stooges influenced anywhere from Woody Allen to the Marx Brothers. 
But we were very concerned for our first movie, if we're going to raise money from investors and put it in theaters, it should just be something that is one of the great staples that you can do cheaply and get your money back for. So we thought, okay, let's not do a comedy. Let's do, let's do horror. And so we did a Super 8 movie called It's Murder, where it's a comedy, but there's a scene in the back of a car. A guy's waiting, waiting, waiting. And then out of nowhere, this guy grabs him from behind. And every time we screened it, the audience jumped. It didn't matter, daytime, nighttime, the guy's party, noisy, everybody jumped every time. So we sort of took notes of like, that didn't cost anything to make people react. So I think that stuck in Sam Raimi's head. Went to college, started reading about the Book of the Dead, the Necronomicon, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, and concocted this story. And I think it wound up being so hard hitting because we thought, if we're gonna make a horror film, Let's not make a standard horror film. Let's make one that is no holds barred. Because when we saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre in a drive-in, that was an incredibly impactful movie. I mean, the opening sequence was almost enough to make me leave the theater because it was some creepy people who have taken graves, dug them up, and then draped their bones over the, the tombstones. This is the opening of the movie, and you're showing, like, police photographs of these horrible, ghastly images. I'm like, oh, no. <clears throat> what is this movie? And I remember reading about Night of the Living Dead in TV Guide. There's this new movie coming out. I think I was 10 or so. This new movie's coming out that is so disturbing, people are fainting. And they are disemboweling people on camera, never before seen. And I, I said to myself, I hope I never see that movie. It sounds too horrible. So we really thought, okay, if we're going in here, let's do it. So I think that's really why it wound up a very unrated movie. Just explain who we are, basically. Sure. Uh, throughout junior high and high school, it was all about neighborhoods where I lived. Sam Raimi, who I met in junior high very briefly, but then got to know him in high school, was in his neighborhood. Myself and Scott Spiegel, who wound up writing Evil Dead 2, co-writing with Sam, he lived in another neighborhood. So a couple neighborhoods, we all did our version of little movies, and then we met each other. Sam Raimi I met officially in high school, and we really got into an industry of making these movies every weekend. And then not long after that, we met Rob Tappert, who became the third partner. Uh, Rob was at Michigan State University, and he was the first guy to impress upon us that you need to raise money. Because these little amateur movies, you pull out of your pocket, we were stock boys, and we had enough money to buy a couple rolls of film. He's like, you wanna make a feature film? Sam and I wanted, we brought it up to Rob, uh, we want to make a feature film. And he goes, he was the first guy who said, you need a lawyer. We're like, oh, what a drag. But that's how it started. So that, that's how the three of us sort of hooked up. Famously, like the money was gathered from dentists <clears throat> and that sort of thing, all sorts of people. Well, the weird thing about low-budget movies is you're not just pitching a studio. That would be easy. Like if we just had to get Paramount to agree to something or Universal or Fox, you'd have to pitch it to like six or seven studios to get a deal, if you were lucky. To raise money for a low-budget movie, we had to pitch 35, 40 individuals so that we could get three or four of those guys. So we had to pitch multiple, multiple studios to get the project made and cobble all that money together to then raise the money. So the amazing thing about low-budget is you're doing it all by hand. You're not farming anything out, which is it's pretty good, but at the same time, They'll say to us at one point, once we've made the first Evil Dead, we found an agent, and he says to us, uh, where are your delivery elements? We were like, what's a delivery element? We didn't know what that was. So it meant, where's your poster? Oh, uh, well, we don't have one. Well, you better go shoot one. So we doctored up some photographs from that. Uh, where's your uh, trailer? What's a trailer? It's the two-minute thing. Where, where is it? Well, we don't, we, okay, we'll make it. We had to make everything, and we're on the phone with Variety saying, what is the screen line that you need and what are the exact dimensions? It was actually very exciting to call Variety, hello, Variety Magazine, and place ads in Variety to their specs based on stuff that we printed in Detroit. We were in suburban Detroit. And I never thought that filmmakers would have to know about VLOXs or screen lines or dimensions or whatever, but they might as well because it's all part of advertising, and you know, we really got into that process of what, what should the name of the movie be? It was originally Book of the Dead, and our agent, God bless him, Irvin Shapiro said, you know, if it's called Book of the Dead, people are gonna think they gotta read for 90 minutes. So he said, come up with some names. And so we came up with all kinds of crazy names, and Irvin, who repped George Romero, and this is how we found him. 
we would go through the Variety magazines during these festivals. And we found him, films around the world, and he had repped Martin, I think, an early George Romero movie. So we thought, this guy, we can get him to watch our movie. He, he obviously has seen horror movies before. We found him, and he saw the movie, and his quote was, well, it ain't exactly gone with the wind, but I think we can make some money with it. So we had to come up with a title, but it wasn't going to be Book of the Dead. So we had like 101% dead, Blood Flood was another one. And so Irvin finally goes, what about Evil Dead? And, we, you know, I, I remember thinking that's, that was like, it's a, terrible, it's a terrible title. Evil Dead, what does that mean? It just seems so basic. It's Evil Dead. What else do you need to say? So we, it became Evil Dead. And we started the sales process. I mean, so in the low-budget world, there's getting the money, which is a big deal, <laughs> securing the investment, trying to figure out how to make it with that small amount of money, and then the sales part. And usually filmmakers fail somewhere along the line. You guys managed to get all of the elements right in that case? We did enough right, I think. We got some money. It wasn't enough. We had to keep going back and raising more. We shot enough of the movie in Tennessee, but it wasn't enough. We had to keep going back and shooting more. Distribution, it worked okay. We didn't really get much done in the United States. What saved us was overseas. We thought it was just the opposite. We'd make money in the U.S., and then you'd get ripped off overseas. We were saved by companies like Thorn EMI back in the early video days. Evil Dead came out right in, you know, 83 on video, and it was right early on. You know, we made a distribution deal with New Line Cinema, which we since called New Lies Cinema. Uh, they advanced a certain amount for the rights to the movie. We never saw another penny. Uh, so, but overseas is where we made all of our money. Oh, yeah. Tell me about the, uh, what you learned from watching uh, drive-in audiences and how you applied those lessons to the film. Drive-in audiences, when they were sort of still around, were just a great test audience. We went to see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in a theater, and that audience was very well behaved. It creeped them out at the beginning, kept their attention, and they were a very quiet audience. We saw Revenge of the Cheerleaders, and when you got to a crappy section, and there were plenty in this one particular movie, the headlights would come on, and they would flick their brights, and they would honk their horn, right, just right in the middle of the scene. And at first we were looking around going, wow, these guys, what a bunch of jerks, geez. But then we thought, well, no, they're just telling you exactly like it is. I came to the drive-in. I came to see some stuff. Why am I not seeing the stuff that I came to see? So this is baloney. So they would just honk the horns. When something happened, they would calm down, the lights would go off, they'd go right back to the movie. But when we saw that, we are like, okay, we need the Texas Chainsaw reaction and not Revenge of the Cheerleaders reaction. All of the Evil Dead pictures just keeps on coming, right? So there's a real, um, there's frenetic pace to a lot of them. We also felt, yeah, ponderous is not the way to go. Uh, let's keep this all moving, especially if a special effect doesn't really work. Let's, let's make it happen quick. Let's not dwell on this stuff because it was hard to hide stuff back in those days. The green garden hose is, you know, what we used to spew most of the stuff. You know, we'd have to shove it under a collar or whatever. And, you know, we didn't go back and try and fix that. It's still there, <laughs> but it's sort of a badge of honor. When I see that, when I see the physical mistakes or a hand in a shot or a boom dipping in, I'm like, you know, that was our best shot. Well, I go back and fix it. It is what it is, you know? It was pretty good at the time. You're not gonna do the uh, George Lucas? No, I think uh, going back and trying to fix stuff is, um, it doesn't represent fairly what it was at the time. Accept it. This is where you were at the time. These were your filmmaking abilities at the time. I got to live with the fact that at 21, with no acting experience, I'm best remembered for playing Ash in Evil Dead. So that, that's my cross to bear. And so now when we, Ash versus Evil Dead, we brought back as a series, I'm actually doing the George Lucas thing now. I'm going back and trying to fix Ash. I can finally bring some experience to this. Because, you know, you make your first movie... First, you can see us all get better as the movie goes on. The shots get better, the acting gets better, everyone gets more relaxed, they're not as creeped out by a camera in their face, because if, if you've never been in a movie before, you, what is acting? Am I acting for that camera or that camera? Is it big, small? How did John Wayne do this? Did he squint? Did he, did he use a lot of expression or no expression? We didn't know anything. So we sort of earned while we learn, I guess. You, you can see it in the movie, but I don't think it's fair to go back. Well, there's that movie, but obviously there are the other 
films that followed too. And yeah. You know, Evil Dead Two, which is sort of like uh, the Gone with the Wind version of Evil Dead. <laughs> so let's talk a little about that. About how the first film is absolutely dead serious, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. And the uh, the next film will stylistically a departure. Well, the first Evil Dead was pretty straight. It was inexperienced actors saying pretty crappy dialogue as earnestly as they can. Um, we've got to bury Shelley. We can't bury Shelley. She's a friend of ours. And we did the best that we could. And we got some unintentional laughs out of the movie, some from the dialogue, some from over-the-top violence sequences. There's a couple in the first Evil Dead where the first person had to get injured by one of these demons. And Rob Tappert, in his twisted mind, goes, it should be the Achilles tendon. Because it's a very, when, a, when an athlete gets the Achilles tendon snap, you're, you're done. I mean, it's kind of, you know, hang up the cleats. So we did it, first characters kneeling down, and the demon gets a pencil and stabs it in the ankle. And so that one got a big reaction out of the audience, because I don't think they knew how visceral the movie was going to be until it started. Because she jams it in there, and we used an apple sound effect, so it's all crunchy, like a red delicious apple. And then bends the pencil down and the blood just pours out. We just hold the shot. So that got a great visceral reaction. Then an, another big one within the movie was, it was known as the vine rape scene. It was a woman goes out to hear a strange noise in the woods as you would, gets attacked by vines which are possessed and they sort of have their way with her. That was another one where we would invariably lose people out of the audience. That was one scene where they're like, can't do this. <laughs> we had a couple of people faint. So it was our first experience with that. You always heard Herschel Gordon Lewis was making these movies and people would faint and scream and cry or George Romero would make something. And it was the first time it happened to us where a scene that we had made was so offensive that some people were like done with the movie at that point. Did that feel like a triumph in some ways or was it too bad? I felt bad. I felt bad for that because I'm like, I, the whole point is to take people along for a ride not to morally offend their being, which is why I think we've always tried to avoid the concept of torture porn. Like you take some guy's wiener and put it in a vice for half an hour and poke it with a stick. It doesn't take the same type of filmmaking that it does to build suspense. So horror is weird because it goes in and out. This pendulum swings, serious, funny, fantastical, graphic, extended, real fantasy, like, a, you know, the killer on the six, six o'clock news, that's one version of horror. That, that was sort of the stalker, stalk and slash movies. You know, they, had, they did so many of these that they had a name for it. Halloween technically is a slasher movie, but it happens to be the Cadillac of slasher movies. It's the nameless, faceless guy in a mask. They did some history to him. You know, they set him up, but still, it's a guy with a mask and a knife is really what that is. Just masterfully done. You know, other horror was Freddy. He sort of broke new grounds because he was a wisecracking bad guy. And that was a very fantastical approach, the nightmare on Elm Street. He comes into your dreams. Different type of horror as opposed to Hostel or Saw, where it's, you know, you wandered into the wrong room at the wrong time with a creepy guy, which is stuff that would be just like what would happen on the 6 o'clock news. So maybe that's an effective type of horror. It could be real enough that it's happening here now, so that it might have one effect on an audience. We never wanted to go there. It seemed too easy. It's already happening. People already hear that every night of some individual doing horrible things to another person. For us, we kind of wanted a little more of the fantastical element of people getting possessed, a little more like old-fashioned, like Exorcist. Because to me, that was probably one of my top five horror movies of the time because of how they treated the subject matter. It's really interesting, that movie. I think it's such a classic because in a lot of horror movies, you just slap a bunch of actors in there, throw blood on them, chase them around, handheld, kill everybody, a couple of loose plot things. This one was, no, no, no. This is William Friedkin going, we're going to treat this like it's a disease. Like, they don't really know what's wrong with this girl. So we're going to scan her, and they got these great sequences. And Linda Blair just, where are you going to find her again at that time, someone who could really have that presence and you got, you know, Ellen Burstyn. These are all like real actors. And she's going, what's wrong with my daughter? This wasn't some lousy actress, you know, trying to say bad dialogue. This was William Friedkin directing this like it was real. And they can't find it. The doctors can't find it. And so th the way they treat it in the movies, you go, well, there's only one other way to this is going to go. If you can't clinically find this thing, then it must be real. And if it's real, holy crap. 
And on top of that, they take a priest who's doubting his faith, now perform an exorcism, the guy who thinks that I might not be able to do it. What a great story. Done really well, great photography, amazing special effects, you know, makeup effects. But that was a great combination of a great approach, great story, great actors. He didn't do the cheesy handheld version of a horror movie, and that thing is a classic as a result, because he was like, no, man, this is going to be so real. You're going to be so terrified because this doesn't look cheesy at all. None of it's cheesy. The dialogue is from, you know, it's from a well-known book. That was just a classic. That's one of my favorites. The Omen is another great one. What do you like about The Omen? Uh, Gregory Peck. It just brings so much gravitas to the whole thing. It was just, The Omen, well, The Exorcist had the best decapitation in, in motion pictures. When that happened, you couldn't take your eyes off it. It was just sort of beautiful and horrifying, and the way they set it up. And Friedkin, when he's on his game, no one can beat him. The, I don't know how he got here, but, Well, the, you know. the Omen had a good decapitation, though, of course. Was that the one with the sheet of glass? Oh, that was The Omen, then. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. David Warner's head was melting. David Warner, oh, awesome. And it's interesting you mentioned The Exorcist also because at that point, that was a rare example of the studio picture where they actually got top paid for a really good, you know, a guy yeah. who just won the Oscar. Yeah, it made the diff, it made all the yeah. difference because it was like taking horror seriously because a lot of filmmakers don't take it seriously. The same with audiences. Eh, cheesy guy in a rubber suit, you know, scaring people. Creature from the Black Lagoon or Sasquatch or whatever whatever creature you have. But that was a way different approach. To me, that's successful like The Sixth Sense was. There's, I don't think there's a drop of blood in that movie. Well, actually, Mark Wahlberg walks around with like a bullet like... You know, Got it. His head. But that's still, the essence of that is it's going on in your head. Polanski's The Tenant. I saw that in college. And the entire movie works on such a great horror level because it's making you think you're losing your mind. So it's the opposite of visceral. It's all mental. So good filmmakers, I feel, combine visceral and mental because it's not just luring him in to scare you. It's creeping you out, and which is a, it's a much bigger skill level. Like literally just creating suspense. Person walking down a hallway looking for somebody, scary dark house or an attic, to build suspense actually takes ability and takes coordination between the camera, the actor, and the director. All of it to work, because a lot of it is timing and atmosphere, and I respect that type of filmmaking. The haunting, to me, not a drop of blood in the whole movie. The original black and white, Robert Wise directed The Haunting. Visually, it's really great. Creepy stairways, and that movie is 90% atmosphere. The original The Thing. You saw the creature in probably about four shots, but you built it up and you built it up and you, you finally saw him sort of backlit. The way they handled it was very good. And I thought the remake, you know, the John Carpenter the thing, became his own version of a classic because you saw it all. <laughs> I'm gonna show a head crawling along and being animated and like the way they did that, there was like, I thought that was cool. They, they went, no, we're gonna show you. We're going to show you in this one. That was Carpenter's thing, is that he was, you know, he sort of complains about Val Luton pictures and said, like, you know, the problem with that is it's dark, and I want to see the monster. Yeah, yeah, but so he did a whole different spin, but it shows you you can take the same concept, same story, and put two completely different spins on it, and they can both work. Yeah, I interviewed Peter Deming in New York. Oh, yeah. And um, he was talking about um, how Sam Raimi was a real technician, he thought, like, he really... It was like he was building a car, basically. So. Well, Sam Raimi uh, was the only director I know of who read the American Cinematographer's Manual. Frame rates, shutter speeds, apertures, lenses. Uh, most directors would be, uh, yeah, I need, uh, I'm looking for a wide shot of this building. You know, and the camera guys would just work it out. Sam was very specific. At the end of shooting Army of Darkness, there was a, a, one of the assistants, the focus puller was Hamid. And he came up to me and he goes, because we did a take that was not even used in the movie. There were 12 marks on the floor for just me. So I had to hit 12 different marks, spinning around. I'm hearing noises. Camera was countering, doing all this crazy stuff. Every time I moved, the camera would move. So I had 12 marks. The camera had about 12 marks. And it ended in a, an extreme close-up of my ear listening. And out of the corner of my eye, I could see how he, he was trembling because this got to the end of the shot. And I'm like, I thought I was the only one who had to go through this crap. 
And I, that's when I realized all the camera guys, they have to go through the same take too. And if it's not a focus band, these guys are dead. There's nothing you can do. If, it's not a, if the actor screws up somehow, they screw up. So he, this guy said he used every trick he had ever learned on this one movie of how to set up shots, how to cheat shots, how to... And Sam really embraces the fake. He'll set up a shot and go, hey, bring that table into the corner of the frame. It's 40 feet away. Scoop supervisor's pulling her hair out. He goes, bring it in. It's, it won't match. He goes, it looks good in the shot. You know, it was all about what the camera saw. He didn't care. Uh, he always used resources really well. Army of Darkness was medieval castles and guys with pikes and things with banners. And he would say, okay, set up the shot. How many banners do we have? Oh, we have like 25 banners. Okay, well, get them all and stick them into the shot. How many swords do we have? I don't know, 15, 20? Get, okay, stick those in the shot. He would just put everything we had in every shot, even if it, it just, continuity to Sam was a, a suggestion. He shot probably half of Evil Dead 2 at 21 frames a second. 24 frames a second is the average frame rate to do dialogue. But uh, Sam would go, let's go 22. And I knew that we had dialogue, so you'd have to manipulate that later. It wasn't going to sync up. But he, Sam didn't care. Uh, during a fight scene, if you shot it at 21 frames a second, he thought it would give it a little kick in the ass because you're eliminating three frames a second from your visual catalog. And it does matter. It's not quite chipmunky in your movements, but it definitely, you go, oh, that's got a little zip to it. Sam once said that he thought 24 frames a second was slow motion. <laughs> it's like it was, it was, it was bothering him. It wasn't, it wasn't fast enough. So yeah, some directors can get extremely technical. And in horror, it gives you the chance to do that. Like with a horror, you can shoot an entire scene of two people talking and it's the camera from down at your feet looking straight up your nose. You know, Peter Deming, who you mentioned, he was the cinematographer of Evil Dead 2. He goes to me, he goes, you know, if people see you on the street like this, they won't recognize you. He says, people have to see you like this. If people saw you like that, they go, oh, it's Bruce. Because the whole All of Evil Dead 2 was looking up my nose. I mean, that camera was everywhere. But I think what's important is the way Sam Raimi works is in Evil Dead 2, it was a crazy story so it could hold crazy imagery. So he specialized in that. Every, everything was weird, special in some way. He shot whole sequences that were with a diopter that smashed everything. And they used to use it for widescreen. You'd film something with this diopter on and then the theater, they would spread it back out again. But if you didn't spread it back out again, it had this really strange, flattened look to it. And Sam shot a whole sequence in Evil Dead 2, frame by frame. You talk about the least efficient way to shoot a motion picture. It's not even 21 frames. This is one frame at a time. And we're holding positions because he's moving the camera. So you're keeping your eyes open to the point where you're basically, you're now, your eyes are weeping because you're holding them up and you hear beep, 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 beep. Beep, beep. This is one take. Beep, 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 beep. So when that's all done, 10, 15 minutes later, where each take is like 15 minutes, the playback, it goes, you know, races past you up to a thing because it was a sequence where all these strange noises are happening in the cabin. He would kind of put a signature on sequences. He'd call this is the zoom boom sequence or this is the smash zoom sequence. We had a sequence in Evil Dead 2 where everything erupts in laughter. And Sam builds sequences. He'll set it up and go, mm, it's not enough. We started bringing people from the front office. At, after a point, there was no one to answer the phones because for this one particular shot, he wanted everything with a monofilament, animate, everything had to laugh. The entire room had to laugh. And there's no digital. You know, you just, you're not doing it. This is 1986. So it's secretaries under a couch with a stick going like this, and it's, you know, production assistants with a thing wiggling one book for a shot. And so that's kind of how he would build all this. And especially you had to do things for real if it didn't work. You know, when you come up with these fantastic stories, if you have a ton of money, you can really throw money and solve a problem. Some cases we would try stuff and it just didn't have enough money to do it right in the first time. So you had to figure out how to do it. Sam has a sequence where Ash is, the character Ash from Evil Dead is shooting his, he's cut his own possessed hand off. And it like flipped him off and now it's running around hiding. He's trying to shoot it. He's shooting at it behind the wall and he shoots holes in it. 
He sees blood come out of it. He, he thinks he got it. He gets closer to one of the holes, and then Sam wanted essentially a blood flood to come through these holes that he shot in the wall. Well, to do it physically as you see it right now, the effects guy had to have all these strong pumps, and you hear it go, and then poof, it would go, come out of the wall. It wasn't instant enough for Sam. He wanted a tube of blood, I mean, coming fully horizontal into my face. So how do you do that? Didn't work the mechanical way, so now this is where visual trickery, if you make these crazy movies, you can get away with a lot. So he tilted the camera this way, tilted the sets this way, I'm tilted this way, so now I'm lying on a board, but it looks like I'm standing up because everything's tilted. The background would be tilted like this with me. Everything looks normal through the camera. Now we can have a 55-gallon drum of blood up above me, pull the plug, it comes straight down. So gravity will do all the work. And it was two 55-gallon drums that they put up above me. So we turn the set sideways, turn the camera sideways, turn me sideways, looks normal, and they literally had a cork. They just uncorked this. And again, when you do weird stuff like this, you don't know what's gonna happen. You don't, because if you've never done it before, how do you know? So Sam says to the effects guy, how long is it gonna take to drain 110 gallons? Effects guy goes, you know, I don't really know. <laughs> Sam goes, okay, Bruce, if you're drowning, just wave your arms and stuff. I'm like, that's what I'm supposed to do anyway. How would you know the difference? So we just went, okay, well, there's only one way to find out. Let's just shoot it. So we, we pulled the thing and just tested it. It was literally one drop, and it hit me square in the forehead. Sam's like, okay, let's go. Let's shoot this. I was blowing fake blood out of my nose for probably a week because it went right up. But when you all cut it all together, it looks great. The, you know, the Evil Dead film, particularly the Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness are... Just, um, they, they mingle, com obviously, comedy and horror go. We got a little pacier as we went, but the original Evil Dead, what's kind of cool about it is if you watch it again, there are really noisy sequences, monsters screaming, taking forever to die, like the longest death sequences. But then you'd have like a minute, and we really spent a lot of time on the sound, because the one thing about horror is that the sound is just as important as your visuals. And you'd have a, a minute of ash breathing, laboriously, it was all, we would just use the sparse sound effects, crickets outside, in this case it was a dead wind. Just grabbing the demon that he just killed, dragging her slowly across the floor, just with breathing and that, it's all quiet, and then you just settle on the face of the demon, you know, in the cellar, watching this all happen. Completely quiet. So Sam was pretty good about creating the periods where an audience can go, oh, what the hell was that? And then they can get back, you sort of reset, and then you can hit them again. Because sometimes if you do the wall-to-wall -wall stuff, you can shut down. You see these big action movies now, you kind of go because there's not enough dynamics. You know, I know that, it's funny, the most recent Star Wars movie, they had to explain a silent shot that the filmmaker wanted. It was so weird amidst a wall of noise that they actually had to say, this is what we planned on doing, don't freak out. But Sam loves messing with sound. We did this for the very first time on Evil Dead 1. Ash is backed up against the door. He's freaking out. It's near the end of the movie. And he's hearing, like, footsteps and stuff like that, uh, women in high heels, all kinds of stuff. And then finally, we decided slowly, track by track, drop the entire sound. No wind, no dialogue. It got completely silent. We had to, we had to ask the laboratory if we drop all the sound and there's zero noise on the actual physical track, when you make the print, will that screw it up? You know, it goes through a gate, a sound gate, when you make your prints. And they're like, no, we think it'll be okay. So it's kind of cool. There's a point in the movie where one by one it gets quieter, quieter, quieter. And, you know, the audience is actually expecting some noise, something. But it went from completely dead to, you know, a full-on scare through the back of the door. That was a great way to do it. And yeah, the last shot of Evil Dead 2 is that great... Famous yeah. movie camera with the, uh, what is that noise, too? That... Well, that, the, we called that the force. It was some evil roaming entity. And it was combined of a bunch of things. One was Sam Raimi's voice. He would go, and wherever the camera went, he would make his voice sort of go with it. And then we, we would pitch that down. So it was very demonic, and we'd warble it out. 
We had an earthquake was one of the tracks. So it was a low, strong rumble. And then we had a hurricane wind, which was another track. And then we had a drone as the fourth track. And you combined all that and it was kind of a cool combination combined with an extremely wide angle lens. It's almost a fisheye lens, but not, not quite. And again, Sam studying lenses wanted a vision that is not seen in the rest of the movie. It's only when you see this roaming entity. And so for the last shot and the very first shot of the movie is Sam Raimi just taped the camera, you know, to his hand and just ran with it. We had what we call the shaky cam. It was a, you take a two by four and you put a bolt through it and you bolt the camera right out of that. You have like a bicycle grip on either end and you can come up the stuff, go over it. You can go like this. And we had a shot half the movie with a silent camera. So it didn't have the big housing or blimping or it was just a little RES. 16 millimeter. You can mount that thing. The opening shot of Evil Dead is me with waiters pushing a raft with Sam in it with his arm out over the swamp water. What was cool about that is he could determine exactly, you know, he's looking where the camera's looking and he's hanging over the edge of the raft. And then we get to a, a jutting thing, he could actually go up and go over it and keep going. I mean, try and do that with a steady cam over, over a, a, a swamp at the opening shot. Cost $9 to do that, but you know, that's what we had. And then you could do another shaky cam that was longer that you'd have a person on either end. This was the full eight feet of your two by four. Person on either end, now you have an object in the middle of you, like a bush that's like four feet tall. You can go up to it, both guys, you just raise it right over and keep going. So there's a sequence where this entity is chasing one of the characters through the woods. And that was used all throughout. You know, it was all, all handheld essentially. So we, use, we call that a shaky cam. So do you prefer the straightforward horror of Evil Dead, or do you like the comedic stuff? I like a mixed bag. I think you should hit people with a little bit of everything. I think Sam's in favor of that, too. Army of Darkness stylistically has creatures in rubber suits, you know. Ash fights rubber-suited creatures. He fights rod puppet creatures. He fights cable-controlled creatures. He fights stop-motion Ray Harryhausen-type animation. And he just figured if you just kept throwing a little bit of this, a little bit of that, no one will really know what is going on. That's his theory. Throw, throw it all up there. And uh, was that fun to play? I mean, is it fun to be in those things, or are these things really physically tiring to do? We had a sequence in Army of Darkness. Uh, that was the most technical movie I've ever done. It was 103 days of shooting, which was the same as Back to the Future 3. Because Sam needs time to shoot these very tricky things. And there was a sequence, it was done in the process called IntraVision, which lasted about a year. And it just was impractical. What it was, was front screen projection. And it's a Mitchell camera, four pin registration to keep everything really locked in tight. You have to shoot the footage for that before you shoot what's gonna be projected. So logistically, it's a nightmare. So the background shot is, let's say, a, an animated skeleton doing certain things like this. And that's gonna be projected, front screen projected onto a silver screen, not a blue screen, not a green screen, a silver screen, and it's live compositing. So when you get your dailies back, you're seeing the composite of that shot. It's not through, you're not compositing it through a laboratory. It's that camera capturing front projection, it's a nightmare. And literally, that was acting by numbers because this camera was so loud, it would go, it's like a meat grinder. And you would hear 31, 32, 33, 34. By 31, I had to be here facing this way. By 35, I had to swing and hit a thing there. By 37, I had to duck. By 42, I had to, you know, I mean, it was, it was acting by numbers. The only downside, I think, of acting in those types of movies is how technical it is. You're kind of going shot by shot in many cases. You don't get a sense of momentum and you don't get a sense of reality. You're looking at tennis balls on sticks, especially now. It was fine when you're fighting someone in a rubber suit. You understood that. But when it gets into way more of the effects stuff, like Army of Darkness, Ash splinters into a bunch of little tiny versions of himself. I mean, you talk about a nightmare of having to make identical actors and then combining that with just all the effects. It, it gets to the point where you can't, you can't even guess how you're doing. Because sometimes the, 
The scene's not gonna be done until they composite this with that. You won't even know how it all gets put together. It's all blind faith in the director, that they understand. When the storyboards come out, that's when it's all over. Because now you're doing storyboard number 37A, part two. It's not scene 33 anymore. You know, these things get broken down so technically. They'll cross off a shot at a time. It's hard to get any sense of momentum. People love to make fun of horror movies. Oh, they're kind of, they're this, they're sort of dismissive. But I'm like, if you had any idea how difficult the average horror movie is to make, there's no normal sets. You're always building stuff like this. In order to get the right atmosphere, you have to pump in smoke all day. You have to, everything you have to rent is weird and different. It can't look normal. It has to look like it's in a horror film. Stylistically, it should be somewhat heightened. And if you're going to have a monster, okay, you're doing prosthetic makeup. You got to get that actor in there molded. You got to see if they can even deal with that. And then once it's on, can they perform with it? You know, there's so many of these aspects that, that come together. So I have sort of a reverse arrogance. If you can do a horror movie, you can do anything. You know, I tell these new actors on our show, Ash versus Evil Dead, you're going to go to your next job and you're going to go, is that all I have to do? I just had to come up here and then Ralph and I talk about, the, about what we're going to buy at the grocery store. Yeah, that's it. Okay, you're released for the day. Oh, wow. Okay, that's it. Normally, you, you know, you'd walk into the shower to shower all the crap off of you that you just got thrown in your face. I, I'm, I'm very proud of what filmmakers can accomplish in ho horror movies because they just don't get the respect. And yet we work as hard or probably harder than any other genre other than maybe, you know, a superhero movie where it's just all effects. Um, particularly the last, if you're making the last act of a superhero movie, that seems like a lot of tennis balls. <sighs> well, you look at the shots, you got six superheroes in one shot running. That's really six composited shots. The Hulk isn't there that day. He's a completely different size and scale. The time it takes to shoot these really is, uh, it's funny because you know some of the classic horror movies are done and like Halloween, I'd love to know how long it took to film John Carpenter's Halloween. Like how much, how quickly did he do that? You hear Little Shop of Horrors, four days. Uh, Roger Corman did tons of stuff in two weeks. I think they can be done a lot more efficiently and I miss a little bit of getting simple. Tell a simple horror story. I'd love to do another, just pers one person in a room and just see if you could pull it off, that type of horror. Really creepy, simple horror, but sophisticated at the same time. Is that something you'd be able to do in your series? Like, tell me about like, what, you're able, how, what you're able to do with Ash versus Evil Dead that you, you know. When you get into genre stuff, it all requires a very stylized look, so we're able to do everything in the studio. And it really helps you create that look. That to me is the coolest part. We were able to recreate the Evil Dead cabin to a, a stunning degree. These guys watched all the movies. We explained to them how the cabin was built and altered at various times. And Rob Tappert and I were the only ones present walking onto that set who would have known that you look down this hallway that there's two doors on the right, one on the left, and where those doors would be, and they got every single one right where the boards would shift to a different style because of the original cabin, we tore a wall out and one room was done one way and one room was done another. And there's no explanation for it because in Evil Dead, half, half of the room has slats and boards and the other half has plaster in it. It's because we ripped the wall out. But the Kiwi craftsmen didn't know that, they just matched it. And so Rob and I looked at each other, we're like, nobody knows how real this is. They kind of did like a seven-eighth scale. So it was, it was amazing. What was fun is to actually go back and revisit this concept, this series, this character with money. It's one thing to say, yeah, we made this movie, the original Evil Dead, 350,000. But now it's just nice to go back and, and you have a digital effects person who's there, who's really doing the right thing. And everybody in every department is top notch and no one's stumbling around trying to figure out stuff. They can manufacture stuff. The ability of them to deliver blood these days is so impressive compared to what it was. You know, in the old days would be a green garden hose or Sam would dip a paintbrush into a bucket, four or five inch brush, and all you have to do is that. And, and it's the lowest budget and it works really well. So we still do that, but it's really nice to go, 
okay, we need this type of a blood thing. How would we do that? And the craftsmen, just, they just come up with it and, and do it. The blood still is horrible. It hasn't changed uh, in 30-some-odd years. How is it horrible? It has horrible toxic dyes, and I don't care what anybody says. In order to get that color, you have to put all kinds of crazy stuff in it. And the effects guys, because they need so much of it, they use the crappy stuff. Uh, and that stuff dies. It dyes your skin. We have good stuff reserved for my face. So we have, a, we have to dole it out because that won't dye my face because it's a higher budget stuff. But we learned that you can use a good old fashioned low budget trick to get blood off of your skin. Shaving cream. It, you need that Gillette foamy action kind that comes out in a gel and it foams up and it'll lift the blood off as long as you get it quick. So we always, if we have, if we have a reset to do, you got to decide quick. Because you got to get that blood off because it'll stain. That's the worst part of it. It's just over the season, you'll just, I'll just get little pink under my fingernails and it's just, it's just there. Now these are different problems than like Lawrence Olivier had to worry about. Did Lawrence Olivier have to walk into the shower with his clothes on in order to get his clothes off? Because he had to have the hot water to melt the fake blood that had hardened to the point where I couldn't take my clothes off on the first Evil Dead. I'd ride in the back of the pickup truck, usually on a Sunday morning, because we'd shoot all night, and everyone's going to church, and I'm in the back looking like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And they would just open up the back door, open up the shower door, I'd go right in, shut it, and that's the only way I could get it off. So, I don't know, yeah, different problems. Uh, so how'd you do the disembodied hand sequences? Uh, Sam knew we did a, a back-in-the-day talent show thing called the Bonzoid Sisters, and we would flip ourselves. And um, it was always very painful. We would do bad acrobatics dressed in long underwear. We'd do bad acrobatics and then look for applause. It was that whole thing. It was very silly. And we were very indestructible back then. And so Sam thought, okay, we're gonna, your hand's going to get possessed, bitten by your girlfriend who's possessed, so your hand's going to attack you. So we just incorporated some of the stuff that we would fool around with the Bonsoid sisters. And Sam goes, it'll grab you by the back of your neck and you can flip yourself. It was doable back then, <laughs> you know. 1986, I think I'm 28, you know, I'm still, still wiry enough to do it. And so it was just a long, grueling sequence. Again, involved anywhere from just a regular, regular hand acting to having it animated by somebody else to having a dummy hand. You know, again, a combo platter. It wasn't any one thing. And then when he cuts it off, that becomes a bunch of different stuff in and of itself. It was, it's animated sometimes. It's a little stump with a guy's arm below a floorboard, an old magician's trick. So the stump would be here, but the actual puppeteer's below a raised set. So you only see that type of thing. You know, tricky stuff. Again, nothing's easy. <laughs> and then now Ash is missing a hand. So then you're trying to grapple with trying to not have this move. If you cut this off, this isn't happening. So then we had to just figure out, am I doing a steel rod that I'm wrapping some crap around here so that, and then yet the end has to be flat. So we still, to this day, we haven't figured it out. It's either too long or weird or bendy or doesn't fit. So it's since, ever since that hand came off, it's been a problem. I'm always happy when it's shoved up the butt of the chainsaw. Then I don't have to deal with it. So the final girl is a famous figure in 80s horror and uh Usually the last survivor fights the hardest, and Ash is basically one of the first final boys. And how do you feel about holding that, uh, that esteemed place in horror film history? Um, there is always the standard aspect of the scream queen, the tormented, innocent person, usually virginal, uh, who made it to the end. Sam wanted to up it. He thought it was one thing to have a woman scream, but he specifically wanted, what if you made a man scream like a woman? What if it was so bad that a man screamed like a woman? And he had several cases where he says, okay, in this shot, when you see the creature, I want you to scream like a girl. Like I want it to be that horrifying. So that was, that was the approach. And he also figured uh, he could beat me up more than someone randomly that he would cast. Again, because I knew Sam for probably four or five years before we did the first Evil Dead. We knew a lot about our own physical capacity just by dicking around in our off time. So that came to great advantage for him and great disadvantage for me. Because he also knew I had a high pain threshold. 
You know, when I met Sam, uh, we were in radio speech class, and he would sit behind me. Teacher would ask a question, I'd raise my hand, and I'd start to answer. And I would feel at the back of my neck, Sam would take a, he'd take a pencil, a number two pencil, and he'd stick the tip right in the back of my neck. And as I'm answering, he's starting to increase the pressure. And I, we, it became this game. And I, I, so I went, I'm not cracking. I'm not going to give in to this little son of a bitch. So he'd keep increasing the pressure with a, you know, a toxic pencil. He'd have to basically poke it into my neck. I would not give in to him. So we would do this day after day. And then I'd turn around like, what, the, what's your problem? And he would, he'd literally say, I tried to help you. And so I think Sam knew that he could do a lot of crap to me, and I put up with it. And mostly he was right. We did stuff, you know, there's no pads. There's no stunt pads. Oh, wait, hold on, let me get my stunt pads. What were stunt pads? We didn't know what those were. One take, two takes, five takes, throw yourself down on the frozen graveyard outside, jumping off a platform, just land. Just land. I, thank God, I mean, I'm like, I can, I'm okay. I'm amazed, you know, I broke, I basically broke my ankle during the first Evil Dead. We finished a very difficult sequence of fighting with my headless girlfriend. So I just was so happy to be done with that. I went running down this hill and I jumped a little bit and I land and went And I, I was like, oh, you just know, you know. It wasn't broken, but it was bad. I shouldn't be continuing to work. So no, 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 we got another whole scene we're gonna shoot. So this is how this sort of became Lord of the Flies. When, you're, when your budget doesn't exist and you've lost half your crew members and you're twice as long shooting than you should be, things get really weird. And the Tennessee winter that winter was one of the harshest. We left Michigan to go south for a warm winter. It was one of the worst, and Michigan had one of the mildest winters. I wrecked my ankle. We got to go shoot this next scene. And next thing I know, Rob Tapper and Sam Raimi have sticks in their hands. I'm like, what are you going to do with those sticks? And Sam comes up, and under the guise of like getting me ready as an actor, he goes, how are you going to do this scene, huh? How are you going to do this scene? I'm like, are you poking, are you, are you seriously trying to poke my ankle with that stick? It devolved into something that matched with the sequence that we were filming at the time, which was Ash going crazy. And I really think that Sam, in his heart of hearts, thought he was helping. I'm just going to get Campbell so agitated and so freaked out that this is gonna be great. And I'm grimacing half the time because my ankle is mostly broken. In the sequence, I come in to, to kiss my girlfriend goodnight, you know, and I'm clearly limping through the whole scene. But Sam was like, well, you've been fighting. You probably would be limping. So there wasn't a lot of uh, coddling or anything like that. You know, it just, there's no support team when you have that small of a crew. We had, I think, 11. We slept in one rented house that they turned into a whorehouse after we left out in the country in Tennessee, which was very interesting. We slept in one house, one crew, one cook. It all became very real. This, the effects guy, Tom Sullivan, was making a dagger, an evil dagger, out of bones, and he used real chicken bones. Because again, we weren't molding, we weren't creating these things. We were, Tom was gluing chicken bones to a, you know, aluminum blade. And in order to do that, he had to just take any chicken we were done with and he would just strip it and boil it and whatever. The house smelled like dead chickens, you know, after about the third week. The laundry room, it smelled the worst. Why would the laundry room smell so bad? Uh, it's because that's where all the chicken bones, we finally found them in a corner, rotting. You know, the, there's just no support team. Someone gets hurt, well, tough it out. My brother Don fell off a cliff. He's scouting and someone saw him go, He's sliding down and he just went boom and just disappeared off a cliff. And so someone, I was doing something else. Someone came over and went, hey, Bruce, I think your brother fell off a cliff. I mean, that was Evil Dead. They're just, so we were like, Don, are you okay? I think so. I think so. You want to go somewhere? Nah, nah, I'm all right. Another crew member jumps out of the rafters, lands on a two by four with a nail sticking out of it, goes right through his foot. He like has to grab his foot and yank it off the rusty nail. And he was incapacitated for two days. We would knock on his door. We'd go, hey, Josh, you going to work today? Not today. So our crew would balloon. It would go 11, eight people, nine people, six people. We lost all the actors. So then we had to put on, if we weren't in a shot, we would pretend to be somebody else. Leave your clothes. It, it got, yeah, very 
Lord of the Flies. But for some reason, it worked for that sequence in the movie. So we kind of lucked out. It wasn't like we were shooting a sequence where everyone had to look very nice. This was near the end. You know, you had to kind of take care of your own clothes, too. And you had to figure out how to manage Caro syrup blood, which was just raw syrup. There was no special blood concoction. We bought it at the local store. But it would become hard candy on your shirt. And I put it in front of this awful kerosene heater that would blow onto it. But I didn't realize it made it into a, like a popsicle. It was almost like rock candy. So I put it on one time and I put my sleeve, right, I just broke a sleeve right off of it. I'm like, okay, well that, that shirt's done. You know, it just, and then where was another shirt? I don't even know how we found another shirt. I didn't know that we had two shirts. It, it was just that sort of thing. So there's so much blood that would splash on the floor of a real cabin. This is a real cabin that we used in the wilds of Tennessee. No one's gonna clean it up. We would just take ashes from the fire and just put it on the floor at a, the blood would just soak that up. So the floor went from brown to gray over the course of, you know, 12 weeks. So was it worth it when you first saw it with the audiences? For me, here's where it all finally, it finally came home. Showcase Cinema Theaters, Pontiac, Michigan. It's where we went to see everything in our formative years, Poseidon Adventure, you know, it was all there at that theater. So one Saturday after the movie was released, I went to the Showcase Cinema and saw Evil Dead play on a Saturday afternoon with probably 18 people in the theater. And that was it. That was actually the point. And people go, when did you think you ever made it? It's like then. It was right then. I didn't care how many people were in the audience. It didn't matter. That's where the Poseidon Adventure was. Our movie is playing in the same screen. Same. It wasn't some small little house. It wasn't some crappy little art house theater. It was the real theater. And it was gravy after that. It really was, because that seemed impossible. It seemed impossible that you could, from Michigan, make a movie, figure out a way to get it in the same theater. It seemed too impossible. There were too many steps in between. And it was nice to actually get to that point, because then you realize it wasn't that big of a deal. And it encouraged you to just stay at it. And then it, it, things got easier. But it wasn't until we made other movies, other genres, that we realized how difficult that first experience was. We would shoot sometimes for 14 hours and get one shot. Because Sam's doing tricky stuff that you need money for. So if you don't have the money to do it, you create a way to do it that takes time. You know, it's like, uh, what is it? You want it fast, good, or cheap? Pick any two. So we could do cool shots, but they would take forever. But we didn't realize that that was bad to take all day on one shot. And when I say bad, it's all subjective. Some filmmakers kind of go pretty slow and others are really fast. But in that case, we didn't think anything of it. We thought everybody's movies took forever and were impossible. Uh, I was kind of glad to get that all out of our system when we were young and work on the hardest thing ever when we were able to take it and not even know how bad it was. Like now I would never, I see the warning flags now. If I smell a, a shoot, someone offers some part or whatever, I start asking questions. And one of them is how long is the shoot? Is it gonna be a 10-day shoot? Which means it's gonna suck for the most part. You know, I did a movie, Bubba Hotep, which is horror with sort of just Joe Lansdale's weird take on this story. And with Don Coscarelli, my question with him was, how long is the shoot? Because if he was gonna say it was a two-week shoot, I wouldn't have done it. Because I know what a two-week shoot is. I know how fast you have to move and I know what you're generally gonna get, which is not good. He said six weeks. I went, okay then I'm good. Because I knew that he knew that he couldn't get this story that fast. And so it's funny, the nice thing is having been an actor in all these low budget things, I know all the trouble signs. Like I got a script one time that was a big sci-fi movie. It actually wasn't a bad script, decent part. And I asked the same question. It was a first time director. I said, how many weeks you got? Oh, we got two weeks. I said, I'm, I'm good, I pass. Because I knew that there was no way in hell that particular person was going to get this material in two weeks. Two guys sitting in a room, yeah, you can probably do that. But not this. He was, this was off the charts. And I was like, mm-mm. So it's been great to learn what the lowest capacities are, and then you can build from there, and you know where the trouble spots are. Thanks to low-budget movies, I know the half a dozen questions to ask to determine whether or not I'm going to say yes or no. What is it about uh, Asher acting in these things? You're, you know, you're kind of 
what you bring to these films and tends to be a mixing of the, the horror and also the comic elements of it. So is that what, for instance, made, uh, has made Ash kind of a popular character over the years? Uh, what I like about the character Ash is he has absolutely zero skills. Uh, he's not former Navy SEAL. I was telling somebody, if Ash succeeds in his mission to defeat the evil and protect Earth again, and he'll be the greatest hero in the history of motion pictures because he has no Millennium Falcon coming to pick him up. He can't be beamed aboard. He can't web-sling his way out of there. He can't put on his robot suit and fly away. He can't fly. He doesn't have a magic protective suit. He's got none of that. And that's what appeals to me, because I'm hoping that the person watching the movie goes, that's me, that's me, and hopefully it'll make you even more terrified. We got a note from our network about how I was handling a gun in some weird way that wasn't really appropriate with gun handling, and I was like, wait, a, what are you talking about? Ash wasn't in the military, how would he know? You know, I push the shotgun when I shoot it. It's very James Cagney, I don't do anything by protocol. And that's what I like about the character Ash. He's horribly mortal. He's, he makes all these mistakes. He's caused his own problems. He caused all of this to happen because of his own foolishness, which is kind of fun, but that's its own particular beast. So Ash is also one of the few good guys in a horror series. Usually it's Jason or Freddy. You know, Halloween 46. It's, it's the same bad guy. So I'm hoping that a, there's, with very few good guys in a series, that people can go... I'll watch that one, because I, I like because he's fighting on the right side. That's what I feel. I can't get behind the bad guy. Uh, that's just me. Well, we had a weird thing. We, we did Evil Dead. It did fine, made money and all that. So we go, okay, we're going to make something that's completely different. No blood, music, dancing, you know, romance. So we made a movie called Crime Wave, and it died 100,000 deaths. This thing was DOA. And we thought, okay. Uh, maybe Ash didn't die. <laughs> so literally, Evil Dead 2 sort of picks up where Ash has another bad night at the cabin. And we did that because we thought our career was dead. We went, we got to go back to Evil Dead. Otherwise, we're, this is, we failed. We did a $2.5 million movie that went up to $4 million, didn't even get released. I mean, this film escaped. It wasn't released. <laughs> we were able to crawl back into the womb, into our comfort zone again. So I, I'll always be grateful to the horror genre because you can kind of go back and start again. You started off, you started again, but you're also able to kind of hit it, tackle it from a different way too, right? Yeah, exactly. And we didn't want to have the same production mistakes we made on, our, on this movie, Crime Wave. We wanted to be organized and do it. It actually wanted to be one of our most productive, normal shoots was Evil Dead 2, because we were so eager to make a movie that was on budget, nothing happened, thing gets released, and so that thing, the good news about Evil Dead 2 is we were in profit before we even started shooting, because of the first movie. So it did get easier to make. I want to tell one quick story. Sure. Stephen King is responsible for making two Evil Dead movies, not just one. Most people have heard about uh, Stephen King saw Evil Dead at the Cannes Film Festival, he wrote an article in Twilight Zone magazine and called it the most ferociously original horror film of the year. And we saw that quote, you know, we spit our coffee out. Stephen King, 1983, he was Stephen King. We had bad reviews before that time. Uh, there was an Atlanta paper that called Evil Dead the sickest of the sick. Sam Raimi took every bad idea he had and put it into a low-budget blender. That was the review. Another newspaper was, the headline was, Films that stoop, like this film isn't even trying. And so we were like, eh, okay, it's not going so well. He, he puts that out. We put that quote on, and he said, you got to put the year, most ferociously original film of 1983. He says, you can't have that evergreen quote for the rest of your life. The next review after we put that on the poster was from Kevin Thomas, the LA Times. It's an instant classic. <laughs> so... He sent out this shockwave of a force field of going, you don't know this movie. Don't be judging this movie. This is a classic. This is, this, this is a ferociously original horror movie, not a piece of crap. It's not a low-budget piece of crap. And so that helped tremendously. But then, so we do our second movie, Bomb. So we go, oh, no, let's make another Evil Dead. We're trying to figure out how to get the money for that. We were working with a woman who was helping us with scheduling and budgeting and stuff. And we finally hit a point... 
well, we, we can't get the money, so sorry, we, we had to let her go. She went to North Carolina to work down in Wilmington, where Dino De Laurentiis was making movies. Stephen King was directing Maximum Overdrive. They get to talking. She got on the crew. What are you up to? Oh, I was just up there working with these Evil Dead guys with the can't get the money for Evil Dead 2. Stephen King goes, you can't get the money. Calls Dino De Laurentiis, goes, Dino, you should finance this movie. We could get a meeting with Dino. We had a deal in about a half an hour. So it's Mr. King, uh, I have great reverence for him. I've never met the man, but he is, uh, was very important in our life and we will always be grateful to that. Hey, can't get enough of the conversation? Eli Roth's History of Horror is now streaming on Shudder, full and commercial free. At Shudder, we're the best selection in streaming genre. It's handpicked and curated by experts, including me. We cover the amazing spectrum of horror thrillers and suspense, including breakout revenge essentials like Mandy and Revenge, all-time classic The Changeling, horror fantasy hit series A Discovery of Witches, and our new Shudder original documentary, Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. Start your free two-week trial with promo code SHUDDERPOD. That's promo code S-H-U-D-D-E-R-P-O-D. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast. Hosted by Sam Zimmerman, produced by Liam Finn, sound designed by Jeremy Lee, music composed by Michael Tioli. Special thanks to executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sienga, Jonathan Koch, Stephen Michaels, James McNabb, Allison Berkeley, and Joseph Freed, as well as the AMC Networks and AMC Studio Development and Production teams who allowed us at Shudder to make this. For Shudder, Owen Shiflett, Nicholas Lazo, and Robin Jones. This podcast is protected under the laws of the United States and other countries, and its unauthorized duplication, distribution, or exhibition may result in civil liability and criminal prosecution. Country of first publication, United States of America, History of Horror, Uncut. <laughs>